Welcome back to CoreYM, the official podcast of the NYU Bellevue Emergency Medicine Residency Program. I'm Brian Gaberti, and today we're joined by Dr. Ellen Duncan. Dr. Duncan is an assistant professor of emergency medicine and pediatrics here at NYU and associate program director for the Pediatric Emergency Medicine Program. Great to have you back in the studio, Ellen. Thanks so much for having me back. So today we're going to discuss one of the biggest topics about some of our smallest patients, syncope in the pediatric population. It is a topic with a lot to consider, but let's start with the chief complaint and what you're gleaning from the triage evaluation. What are the first few things that go through your mind when this chief complaint pops up on the track board, and how are you starting your evaluation and management? And also, Ellen, tell us if there's anything we're doing different at this point compared to adults with a similar chief complaint. I think the workup for kids is pretty similar to that for adults. The first couple of things that we're going to check are a point-of-care glucose to make sure the patient isn't hypoglycemic and an EKG. Of course, the history and physical exam are crucial in these patients, but these two tests really identify things we might quickly act on. Great. I'm glad we're focusing on the sugar as we should because this is something that can be corrected early on, and if it goes without detection, it could be fatal. I know that giving sugar to kids is a bit more complicated than giving sugar to adults and that there's a nifty rule that can be used here. Can you walk us through how you determine which type of dextrose-containing solution you reach for and how much? Yeah, so we have a rule that's called the rule of 50s. Essentially, the percentage dextrose concentration multiplied by the number of milliliters per kilogram of fluid should equal 50. So for example, if you have a 10 kilogram child, you can give a 10% dextrose solution with a total volume of five milliliters per kilo or 50 mLs. Okay, so fairly easy to remember. And as another example, just to drive home the point, if you're reaching for 5% dextrose containing solution, then you're gonna be giving a volume of 10 cc per kg or 50. Now on to the next critical component of the evaluation for any patient with the chief complaint of syncope, the EKG. When you pick up an EKG for these patients, Ellen, Tell us what you're looking for, what you're hoping to see, and what you're hoping not to see in these tracings. So there are a number of different EKG abnormalities to look for. Arrhythmias that can lead to syncope and even death include things like long QT syndrome, both congenital and acquired varieties, Brugada syndrome with its characteristic pseudo-right bundle branch block and ST-segment elevations in leads V1 through V3, catecholamine polymorphic VTAC, which can be induced by stress, arrhythmogenic right ventricular cardiomyopathy, which is also known as AVRD, where the D stands for dysplasia, with its epsilon waves, anomalous origin of the left coronary artery from the pulmonary artery, or ALKAPA, which is characterized by a number of different abnormalities, including Q waves and T wave inversions in 1 and AVL, and often deep Q waves, ST segment elevations, and sometimes T wave inversions in the lateral precordial leads, and lastly, pre-excitation syndromes like Wolf-Parkinson-White. Of course, it's important to remember that younger kids are especially dependent on heart rate for their cardiac output. So any type of rhythm, including bradycardia and AV block, can lead to syncope. Remember also that kids with congenital heart disease can be prone to arrhythmias, especially if they've had surgical correction. Okay, so a lot of things to keep on our radar when we review these EKGs, and it could be difficult to retain all this when listening to it on the podcast, so we're going to include a list in our show notes for all these characteristic findings. Okay, at this point, we review the vitals, the EKG, and the finger stick, and we can now move on to the bedside and gather our history from the patient and the parents or bystanders. What kinds of things are you making sure you ask for when you take a history from these patients? So one of the key questions to ask is whether the patient has palpitations or syncope with exertion, since this really points to a possible cardiac cause. Other things on history that might point to a cardiac issue include syncope after being startled, which can trigger arrhythmia in patients with underlying abnormalities, and syncope after pain or emotional stress, 
which can cause syncope in patients with familial catecholaminergic polymorphic ventricular tachycardia. However, prolonged loss of consciousness should raise suspicion for things like seizures, and emotional stress and pain can also cause breath-holding spells in some children, so it's not always the heart. Yes, and it's so important to emphasize the role of gathering a quality history in these cases, whether it's from the patient, parents, or bystanders, like we said earlier, as this is going to be guiding our workup. And I'm glad that you brought up the breath-holding spells as a consideration in the pediatric patient presenting with syncope, because as the father of a former breath-holder, I can say that these can be very unnerving to witness. So let's take a quick detour and flesh out this item on the differential since it's so common and sometimes misunderstood. Yeah, so the term breath-holding is actually a misnomer. Kids with breath-holding spells typically have a forced exhalation, not inhalation, that's then followed by apnea and loss of consciousness. The exact causes are not fully understood, but these spells seem to be related to a combination of factors like autonomic dysregulation, vagally-mediated cardiac inhibition, delayed brainstem myelination, and iron deficiency. There are two different types of breath-holding spells. The first are cyanotic, which make up about 75% of cases and are typically triggered by anger or frustration. As the name suggests, children with this type have cyanosis before their loss of consciousness. On the other hand, pallid breath-holding spells, which make up the remaining quarter of patients, are typically triggered by pain or fear. Patients with this type of breath-holding spell typically have pallor and diaphoresis before loss of consciousness, and they may be sleepy or confused after the episode. Breath-holding spells are associated with iron deficiency, and iron supplementation can help even when patients aren't anemic. One of the most important things to remember, especially as a parent, is that these episodes are not volitional, and most children outgrow these spells by the age of eight. And they generally do not cause long-term neurodevelopmental problems. Perfect. An excellent review of a condition that afflicts parents more than it does children. Now, we've gathered our history, looking for clues in the history that would suggest the etiology of syncope, such as pain or emotional stress triggering a vasovagal response, along with asking if this was in the setting of exertion or if the patient had just stood up before they lost consciousness. Now, we move on from being gumshoes with taking our history and go on to our physical exam. Ellen, walk us through what you pay particular attention to when you evaluate these patients on exam. A thorough physical exam is really important, but that cardiac exam is really crucial for anyone with syncope. Patients with hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, for example, can have a murmur from the left ventricular outflow obstruction. This murmur generally decreases with anything that increases venous return, things like squatting or valsalva. Any new findings, like gallops, rubs, and new murmurs, should also prompt further evaluation. Okay, so we've covered a lot of cardiac causes of syncope that we should be looking out for in our evaluation. We've covered hypoglycemia, and we've even touched on breath-holding spells. But what about good old garden-variety vasovagal syncope? So that definitely happens in kids, and especially teens as well. Patients with vasovagal syncope often have that typical prodrome of lightheadedness, tunneling vision, diaphoresis, and pallor. These patients should have a normal glucose and EKG. Some patients will have things like orthostatic hypotension, and teenage boys especially are prone to something called stretch syncope, where stretching their arms above their heads, which kind of combines Valsalva with mechanical compression of the vertebral arteries, can also lead to syncope. Now, before we finish the discussion, I want to pivot for a second, and I know it can be difficult to talk in broad strokes with a topic like syncope, but tell us if you're getting any additional labs or tests or if you're considering anything else in the miscellaneous bin for this chief complaint. Yeah, so we often check pregnancy tests in reproductive age women because ruptured ectopic pregnancy can cause syncope. However, these patients often have an accompanying abdominal pain to point to that diagnosis. 
other non-cardiac causes of syncope that we should be investigating for that are less common in kids but may still happen include things like pulmonary embolism, subarachnoid hemorrhage, toxic exposures like carbon monoxide poisoning, and drugs of abuse. Okay, Ellen, we've covered a lot in this episode. Let's go over some take-home points. When a child presents with syncope, immediate assessments should include point-of-care glucose to check for hypoglycemia and an EKG to identify any cardiac rhythm abnormalities. For hypoglycemic children, apply the rule of 50s to determine the appropriate dextrose-containing solution. Now, be vigilant for EKG findings of serious conditions like long QT syndrome, Brugada syndrome, catecholamine, polymorphic VTAC, arrhythmogenic right ventricular cardiomyopathy, L-kappa, and Wolf-Parkinson-White syndrome, just to name a couple, which can lead to syncope and can be life-threatening. During history taking, focus on symptoms such as exertional syncope or prolonged unconsciousness, as these can indicate cardiac issues or seizure disorders, respectively. Recognize the breath-holding spells, often the result of anger, frustration, or fear, involve forced exhalation followed by apnea. These usually resolve by the age of eight without any long-term issues. And for the parents of these kids out there, stay strong. On exam, prioritize the cardiac evaluation. Look for signs indicative of conditions like hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, such as a murmur that will intensify with increased venous return. Finally, this is another one of those situations in emergency medicine where we have to fight the urge to hone in on a diagnosis early on and fall victim to early closure and keep our differential broad for the less common causes of syncope in children. As is usually the case, it comes down to a detailed history and physical that will determine the appropriate workup for these patients. Okay, that'll do it for this episode. Ellen, thanks so much for being back on the show and going over this important topic and how to best care for our pediatric patients. Thanks so much for having me back. 